Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We have theater in varied forms today. Playwright Sophia Palmero takes us to the year 2070, and Mother Earth is in total disarray. But there may be hope for the environment with the college students of Tucker's Cove, a new podcast from Actors Express. First, the opening of a new play-reading series from True Colors Theatre Company, based on a classic. Lorraine Hansberry's 1959 play, A Raisin in the Sun, ranks among the greatest of American dramas, the greatest dramas written, for that matter. The injustice of housing discrimination and dreams of a better life are at the heart of this story. But what was the family's original dream before it was deferred? Playwright and theater critic Calandra Smith explores these themes in her new play, Younger. Kenny Leon's True Colors Theater Company will host readings of the play, part of True Colors' Reality of Realty series at the Southwest Art Center tonight through Sunday. The playwright joins me now via Zoom. Kilandra Smith, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's always such a pleasure to share space with you. Likewise, and very eager to learn more about this show. Why did you want to create a prequel to Raisin in the Sun? Well, I, um, Liz Gilbert, who um, everybody may know from the book Eat, Pray, Love, she also has a book called Big Magic. Um, in that book, Big Magic, she writes that ideas are invitations and that an idea will go from person to person until it finds the one who will accept it. And this idea came to me originally when I was in high school. Uh, my senior year of high school, I had an opportunity to direct A Raisin in the Sun for my drama club. And as I was digging into the play, there was just kind of a small little thought in my 17-year-old mind of, I wonder what this family's life was before Chicago, especially because in my own family, there's a history of the great migration of people moving from Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia to places like Detroit, Chicago, New York, Indianapolis. And so I saw the, the parallels there and I wondered what was that original dream that was deferred. But then I just kind of, you know, never did anything with it. Playwriting was not necessarily an aspiration of mine. And so it was an idea that popped in my head, but you know, I never really did anything with it. And then this little pandemic happened and I found myself in the house, unable to see live in-person theater 
for the first time in over a decade, when as a theater critic, I spent almost every weekend in a theater. Um, and as a storyteller at my core, with that time I had in the house to reflect and think and all of that, you know, it became time to write. And so Younger came out of that time. Ah. Can you give us a quick summary of the play? Sure. In Younger, which is my imagined prequel to A Raisin in the Sun, the father who has passed and left behind the life insurance policy in A Raisin in the Sun is very much alive. And he and the mother, Lena, are in their 30s, have just moved from what I imagine to be Jackson, Mississippi, to Chicago, and they're trying to make their way in this new place. And so the play explores the differences between life in the South and life in the North, the community that they leave behind and the community that they must create to survive in a new place, and what their dreams were as young people and how they pass those dreams along to their children who we see in A Raisin in the Sun. So how familiar with A Raisin in the Sun must playgoers be in order to appreciate Younger? You don't have to be at all, actually. Younger really does stand on its own as a prequel for folks who are familiar with A Raisin in the Sun. There may be some, um, you know, winks and nods, um, but for folks who are who are completely unfamiliar and have never seen it, it stands on its own as a play that is truly about family, about community, about love, and about holding each other up through tough times, which we all could use more of right now. Indeed. I was intrigued. In fact, I did a double take, Calandra, when I was reading your playwright's notes. You said, I first met Lorraine Hansberry and thought, wait, what? (laughs) Because I know I could be your mother. And I was 12 when she died, but I guess so close. Do you feel to her that you said you first met Lorraine Hansberry, meaning that you first encountered her work when you were a teenager. So would you tell us about your personal connection with Hansberry's work? Yes. So I first got into theater when I was in high school, and I jokingly always say theater is where they put the kids who talk too much in class. (laughs) Um, That was always my behavior note uh, in class. She's so smart. She gets all A's. She talks incessantly. So um, born storyteller. I am a storyteller. Exactly. And so um, I went to a predominantly white high school and the theater program was, you know, the whitest part of my predominantly white high school. And as is natural for anyone, you know, when you're doing any sort of artistic work, you crave to see yourself. And we didn't really read many plays by Black playwrights in my English classes or in theater classes. And so I remember stumbling across this book on a shelf in my theater teacher's uh, office, and it was A Raisin in the Sun. And I cracked it open and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we have to figure out a way to do this play. And that was my first introduction to Hansberry. Now, what I learned along the way is that I have a great aunt. She's gone, she's now passed, but she actually had met Lorraine Hansberry back in the 1950s in Chicago because my great aunt had moved from Mississippi to Detroit and she was visiting you know, my, some of her siblings, including my grandmother in Chicago on a trip and, and met Lorraine Hansberry. So that's a, you know, kind of an interesting a nugget that I learned years ago. Also, the character Benita, when I was in my teens and 20s, really resonated with me because I think that as a creative person, 
you, we tend to want to explore all parts of ourselves and not just have to pick one thing. And that's certainly true of Benita in A Raisin in the Sun. She's spunky, she's outgoing. She is what we would in modern context call a feminist. She's into guitar lessons. She's into horseback riding. She wants to be a doctor. She's ambitious and she's bright. And that character really hooked me as a teenager uh, because I saw myself in her. And as I get older, I definitely still uh, can see some Benita, but then I also understand Ruth, who is her sister-in-law, a bit more now that I'm in my 30s. So I feel that Lorraine Hansberry was very much ahead of her time in writing complex women who had the nerve to want something. In the 1950s, when women were not necessarily allowed to want anything. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is Atlanta playwright and critic Kalandra Smith. Her new play, Younger, opens True Colors Theatre Company's upcoming series, the reality of realty. Did you go to high school in Atlanta? I went to South Gwinnett High School in Snellville, which at the time was a predominantly white area. Demographics has since shifted, but at the time it was predominantly white. So I'm thinking about your predominantly white high school drama class and drama club. Tell us about the cast for this play about Black people. So uh, we did something in 2007 that would never fly in 2022, (laughs) which is that I had a multiracial cast. So I had both Black and uh, white actors in the cast. And, you know, looking back on that experience, I, I, I often say you wage the revolution you can at the time in the same way that, you know, Ethel Fugard was uh, producing plays like Blood Knot in apartheid South Africa with white actors playing actors who would be, you know, considered what they call, would call colored in South Africa, which we would call light-skinned in America. You know, you you wage the revolution you can at the time, but then you evolve, right, as times change and and move forward. So I look back on that experience at my high school and um, I value it. And I think that the people involved might have had a broadened worldview because I think theater is such a an empathy um, builder in us. Um, And at the same time, I completely understand how crazy that sounds in 2022 to say you put a multiracial cast in a raise in the sun, that's insane. (laughs) But again, like I said, you you wage the revolution you can with what you have at 17 years old. Yeah, and who knows, maybe that's path breaking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where, like I said, I, I think that because our curriculum was so heavily, you know, it was the Greek comedies and tragedies, it was Shakespeare, it was, you know, Sondheim, it was Neil Simon. It was all know, white. It was all white. There would have been no, there was no exposure to Black theater or Black literature, even in my English classes. I mean, I, in, in, my, in, in my literature classes, I don't even know that we read Langston Hughes. So it was an exposure for everybody, which I, I view positively even to this day. And I think that my classmates who were bold enough to go on that journey with me, you know, I still, I still think, wow, like we were really kind of being a little rebellious and way makers as, as teenagers, because we didn't have the support of the booster club or, you know, even our classmates in doing this. People were very wary of it um, at the time, but we forged ahead anyway. And so I'll be forever grateful for the people who took that chance And I also understand how in the context of 2022, people may hear that and go, that is insane. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some good things come. I mean, progress 
has been made. Yes. I read also that when you learned of your own relatives' roles in the Great Migration, you described their experiences as being like refugees without a third country. When you were writing this play, how were you reflecting on your own dreams and the choices your family made to help you arrive where you are today? Oh, that's such a good question. I'll answer that in two parts. I have a great uncle who lives in Detroit. He grew up in G's Bend and in Selma, Alabama, which is where my dad's dad's side of the family is from. And I remember when he turned 80, we all went to Detroit to visit him and he was retired from Ford Motor Company. And he told us this story about how he worked for Coca-Cola in Selma and about how his supervisor at Coca-Cola in Selma was like, oh yeah, you go to Detroit, I'll send you up with the recommendation letter and uh, you should be able to get a job, you know, at Pepsi Cola or at Coke or, or, or at some bottling plant up there. And he was in his 20s and, you know, took a bus from Selma to Detroit and went to the factory to try to get a job. And in Detroit, they told him, we don't hire inwards here. And that's how he ended up in the auto industry. And one of the undercurrents in Younger and in Raisin is the uh, place of unions and how unions have helped to pull people out of poverty. And that's certainly true when it comes to the Great Migration and my own family. On my mother's side, her father and three of her brothers retired from General Motors. On my father's side, like I said, you had my great uncle who retired from Ford. And I think there's something to be said about the blue collar folks who went into the factories and worked the long hours to build what we now see as the middle class in this country. And from our vantage point now, we see the ways the communities that those people built are being eroded and the corporations that profited off of them seem to have no obligation to the people who built them to begin with. And so in thinking about that, I, I, I definitely did have to think about the role of unions and the sacrifices that so many people made so that I could do what I do today. And even when I think about, uh, again, you know, my, my mother's mother cleaned houses on East Lake Golf Course. It's one of those things where people toiled away on farms and in factories so that the next generation wouldn't have to. And I feel very privileged to be a writer when I am the granddaughter, or I was just a great granddaughter of folks who, who couldn't even read and write, who weren't even allowed to finish school. And I've got, you know, all the student loan debt of, as evidence of all the school that I've done. <laughs> well, so I consider it a privilege. And you do stand on their shoulders. The three Raisin in the Sun related plays, Younger, yours, Beneath's Place, and The Etiquette of Vigilance are part of this series at True Colors titled Reality of Realty. How do these plays, and I guess specifically your play, address the effects of housing discrimination? So the three plays that are a part of the Reality of Realty series are in order uh, chronologically. So my play Younger is an imagined prequel set in 1935. And in the play, when we talk about real estate, we're seeing this moment in Chicago where 
people from what was then the Soviet Union and African-Americans from the South are coming into the city and Chicago's neighborhoods as we know them now are forming. And we have people, both Jewish people and black people and folks from Eastern Europe who are coming into this city and having challenges finding housing because people are segregating into their own neighborhoods. This is the time in which South Shore starts to become um, a neighborhood. And so we have that at play in Younger. Beneath this place, which follows uh, the daughter in A Raisin of the Sun, Benita, from the 1950s to the 1980s, she's in Africa and facing similar issues, but on a larger scale when it comes to settler colonialism and imperialism and the fight for African nations to get free from uh, colonization. And then there's the etiquette of vigilance, which is set in the 21st century. And it is about the sun from uh, Walter Lee and Ruth's son, Travis, who was just a little boy in A Raisin in the Sun. This is his story of his family trying to hold on to the home that Lena purchases at the end of Raisin. And they're in a very different Chicago than the one of the 1950s or even the one of the 1930s in my play. And all of this speaks to what we are experiencing in America today as it relates to affordable housing, redlining, and infrastructure. Even in Atlanta, we're dealing with these issues of gentrification. Look at what's happening and has been happening in People's Town for the last decade with people being displaced out of their homes. We can look at neighborhoods all across the city, whether we wanna talk about Bankhead Heights or Summer Hill, or even look outside, just outside of the city at places like Decatur, where we have seen taxation without proper representation moving people out of the communities that they built. At the same time, we also have in Congress this infrastructure bill, which has built in it funding for to help to restore communities that were cut through by the building of the interstate highway system in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And we're looking at how the placement of those highways enforced segregation and was designed and did it by design. I-20 in Atlanta is a prime example of that. As a matter of fact, I-20 in Atlanta is, I believe, named in the legislation as one of the highways where communities around it need to be addressed because the way it was built was meant to reinforce segregation. So the past is certainly prologue. And these plays are absolutely relevant to what's going on in our world today. But I think it's also important for people to understand that plays are not just about ideas, plays are about people. And so yes, these scripts deal with various issues, whether we're talking about housing, redlining, segregation, real estate, education, dreams, all of those things. But at the core of it is hearts and souls. And we can't ever forget that when policies are being made, people are affected. It's not just words on paper, it's people's lives. Playwright, theater critic, and arts journalist, Calundra Smith. Readings of her new play, Younger, hosted by True Colors Theater Company, will be held at the City of South Fulton Southwest Art Center tonight through Sunday. Smith's reading is part of True Colors' series, The Reality of Realty, which features contemporary readings inspired by Lorraine Hansberry's classic, A Raisin in the Sun. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, here with you and City Lights senior producer, Kim Drobes. Kedro, welcome. <laughs> hey there, Lois. You know, this month marks eight months that I've been able to work with you on City Lights, and I've really, really enjoyed not only doing the job, because of course the job is cool, we get to talk about the best arts and culture in Atlanta, but as a previous listener, I've really enjoyed getting to know you more. And so this might sound goofy, but I would love for our audience to get to know you more. There might be newcomers to Atlanta or new listeners to our show, and who doesn't want to peek behind the scenes? Because sometimes we talk about stuff that just doesn't make it on the air. So, with your permission, I would love to start every once in a while focusing on things that Lois likes. I appreciate that. And the joy has been mutual throughout these eight months, Kim. In fact, just recently, someone referred to us as the dream team. I think you have a lot to do with that. That is very sweet, but also a hilarious comparison. Yeah, Michael Jordan, I am not. (laughs) Indeed. But since you mentioned the Dream Team, I've got a perfect getting to know Lois better topic for today. Did you guys know that Lois likes basketball? Yes, I love basketball. I think basketball is poetry in motion. I think perhaps more than any other player, Michael Jordan seemed balletic in his grace. I mean, I know he's been called the Barishnikov of the basketball court, (laughs) and I think it's easy to understand why. This came up between you and I recently, and I was surprised that there were any sports, really, that you kept (laughs) close to your heart. And I love that you follow basketball and enjoy watching it. Well, my brother loved basketball. There were games on in the house. My dad enjoyed them, went to games. But my real love for basketball came in 1976, early the very first month when I entered graduate school at Indiana University. Um, This was also days after Don and I were married, and he had been in Bloomington for five years before that. But Indiana University had a glorious tradition of basketball, and the year I entered was when IU had an undefeated season. They won the NCAA championship under the somewhat notorious coach, Bobby Knight. But it was so much a part of the spirit of Indiana University. And that also was part of the joy I felt being in the school where I wish I had been much earlier, most of my life, in fact. (laughs) But Don and I would watch the IU games, and I not only learned more about the game itself, but just the beauty of plays. And Kim, you know, I'm not competitive. So it, it wasn't the winning, it was the beauty of the plays. And Bobby Knight at that time was performance art himself. I mean, it was just exquisite to behold. Of course, I also liked the fact 
that our band, you know, Indiana has such a marvelous music school, and I was privileged enough to get in and attend. So we had some really outstanding music at those basketball <laughs> games. As a matter of fact, Kim, when I was making dinner last night, I told Alexa, uh-oh, she may light up now. <laughs> I told her to play Philadelphia Freedom because the NCAA championship that year was in Philly, and that was the song that was being played by the Hoosier band, and it just makes me smile and feel warm and good all over. I never got to attend an IU basketball game live while I was there because tickets were near impossible to obtain, and if they were obtainable, I was usually working at the radio station there on the weekends, but on the night of the final game in Philly, those of us at the radio station wheeled in a TV from our uh, companion PBS affiliate, and I don't know how the engineers kept track of what they were doing. I put on a <laughs> Bruckner symphony, which was, you know, close to hours in duration, and, and we just watched the game and cheered and, you know, did a Snoopy happy dance. It was thrilling. That's awesome. And have you ever gone to see a Hawks game here in Atlanta? Yes. As a matter of fact, Alan Henderson, who was one of Bobby Knight's dream team players, he played for the Hawks. And then, oh, was it in 04 or 05? Another one of Bobby Knight's great players, Mike Woodson, became coach of the Atlanta Hawks. And I went with someone who is a friend of the show. I'm proud to call a personal friend as well, NBA All-Star, Joe Barry Carroll. I asked Joe Barry Carroll if he would interview Mike Woodson for our station. This was before City Lights. and That's so cool. It aired during a local cutaway in Morning Edition. But anyway, going to Hawks games was so special. I'm so glad you shared this with everyone because this was definitely new information for me. I had no idea that Lois liked basketball. Oh my God, I love it. I love the grace of it. And I think the accessibility of the game is extraordinary. I know athletes make these multi-million dollar salaries and all, but when the game began, it was literally a basket nailed up on that board. And it was a game that you didn't need to have access to anything other than a ball. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Lois, let's do this again soon. And let's share more of what Lois likes. In my not altogether humble opinion. <laughs> This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Last year, Actors Express released their first podcast series, Crossroads, as part of Amplify, their newly created podcast platform. Another series was just released in January called Tucker's Cove. It's a mysterious play set in the year 2070. Joining me now via Zoom is one of the playwrights, Sophia Palmero. Welcome to City Lights. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, please tell us what's the underlying story of Tucker's Cove. So at its surface, Tucker's Cove is the story of six college students trying to do some tasks for this mysterious organization. But at its heart, Tucker's Cove is about college students who are dealing face front with the climate crisis and feel disempowered and are looking for a way to make a difference and save their futures. Ah, why did you want to set the story in a college? This was different for Crossroads, but the way that this particular year of the Amplify program went 
is we were tasked with writing for the interns for Actors Express. And so we sat and we talked with them. We had a whole meeting with them talking about the roles that they like to play, the kinds of stories they like to see, the issues that matter to them. And we kept coming back around climate crisis and all the interns are about college age. A lot of them are fresh out of college. And so it felt right to have the story set with college students since the youth are pretty much the people who, who were, were doing this climate crisis work for. They are the ones who will have to deal with the brunt of it as they grow up. Okay, everyone, go ahead and take your seats. We are going to be uh, getting started here shortly. Come on, Ron, where are you? Guys, could you just... Guys! Quinn! I got your SOS, what's wrong? Quinn, thank God. Rowan is supposed to be working this session. I was only here to do backup, and now I can't find the right slide deck for this session, and everyone just keeps talking, and... Zane, Zane, breathe. What session is this? Freshman welcome. Oh, have me your telepad. That slide deck is right here. And this is the easy one. These guys already had orientation over the summer. Literally, you just read straight from the slides. You got this. afternoon, students. What a great day to be a seagull. Uh, yes. Good afternoon, Dr. Peebles. I was just getting started. Quinn was helping me find... I was trying to figure out uh, the... I thought Mr. Hawkins was working this session. Uh, yes. Well, see, about that, there's... Uh... He is. Probably just running late, as usual. No worries. Zane called me over, and I've got him all set up. How nice. I see lots of familiar faces. I'm glad to see many of you remained in contact with your friends from orientation. Perkins, is it? Sydney Perkins? Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, ma'am. I remember you from orientation. How's your app coming along? It's uh, good. Th thank you. Th thank you so much for, for remembering. Lift your head up. Nothing of value can be found on the ground. Uh, yes, ma'am. So it felt really appropriate to have these young disenfranchised students um, that kind of mirrors really heavily the students that we have today and the young people we have today. And so we really wanted to capture that like young fighting essence, especially as it relates to climate. Sure. The idea of forbidden paper, which is an element in the story, this brings to mind Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 for me. What inspired the premise of Tucker's Cove? Funny that you mentioned Fahrenheit, because I, I do think that there are definitely some, some parallels there. But I think what really started it was we had this whole idea, right, with we wanted to do something about climate change. The interns were really, really adamant about how passionate they are about it. And then when we met up with Amanda, who's our producer, she runs the Amplify program. When we met with her, she had some loose ideas. She was like, here's like the kind of stuff that we're thinking about. And there was a lot of stuff about letters. And so it was a lot of like letters and a lot of like, you know, secret notes. And we were like, okay, secret notes, mystery, that looks fun. And then suddenly it was this moment where we were like, but what if paper's not allowed? So then that way, the sound of the paper is like this big taboo type of thing. And it gave the paper a lot more weight. And from that nugget of like, the paper's not allowed, we're in the future, and you know now paper's illegal, from there kind of stemmed the entire world that we created. I mean, if you think about the history of paper, right? And how long, like when you think about papyrus in, in Egypt, ancient Egypt, right? And how they were writing on paper then. And you think about almost all of human history being recorded on paper. And you get to a point where the climate crisis has gotten so intense that you can no longer even manufacture paper. No one's allowed to make paper. No one's allowed to have paper. I think that is, is an attempt to capture how serious things have gotten um, and how different the world looks, even though in some ways it looks almost exactly the same, right? Kids are still going to college. They're still fighting the good fight, but there's still this massive shift in the way society functions and in the way we now choose to record and document human history. Sure. So the reason for forbidding paper is because it costs trees and affects the environment. 
Yeah, yeah. But I think that there's still an element of feeling silenced because I think a lot of these students feel that way. I think that that's something what I see parallel between Fahrenheit and Tucker's Cove, right? In terms, obviously not the censorship, but this idea of feeling disempowered and feeling like you can't really do anything because the entire world is like against you. And that's very much what's happening for the students at Tucker's Cove. Okay. You co-wrote these episodes with Kayla Parker. Can you tell us about the collaboration process? I'd love to, because that was, I think, one of the biggest challenges of this project. Um, But I mean that in the best way. But me and Parker, before we had our very first meeting as a team, me, Amanda and Parker, and Freddie too. Amanda Washington is your producer. Yes. And Freddie Ashley, the artistic director of Actors Express. Thank you. Yeah. So it was the four of us and we had our first meeting. That was me and Parker's first time meeting ever. And so we didn't know each other. We weren't familiar with each other's. We had seen each other's writing in the Threshold Festival through Actors Express, but we had never really met. So the first, I think, few weeks up to like a month of the project was really us kind of like getting to know each other and started to talk ideas, talking a little bit about our style, about, you know, what our strengths are. And then when we actually got to the writing, it was very experimental. You know, we had six episodes to write up to 30 minutes each. So about three hours of content, right? Which is for the average playwright, we're usually writing in one and a half one one hour to an hour and a half stretches, maybe two hours if you're a very ambitious playwright. But a lot of it ended up in us like experimenting with different things. So the first episode is actually completely written and directed by Parker. The second one, we split the writing. Parker wrote some scenes, I wrote some scenes. Third episode is all me. Fourth episode is a mix. Fifth episode is all me. Sixth episode is all Parker. So we we experimented with the diff- different types of co-writing, whether it be separate or together. And we didn't necessarily land on like, oh, this is the way to do it. But we did learn a lot about how to pay attention to the type of story and then cluing in on, okay, maybe because this story is really hyper-focused on two of the characters, it's more you know, it, it makes more sense and it's it's more convenient to have one person, right? Versus something that has a lot of disjointed things happening at once that you can easily have two people write in the same episode. So it was a lot of experimenting and it was a lot of fun, but such a challenge to do it with someone you've only known for, you know, a couple of weeks. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with playwright Sophia Palmero about Tucker's Cove, the new podcast from Actors Express. I'm curious about the arrangement of the actors, wondering if they were all together or in separate booths. How did the cast members record these episodes? Oh my gosh, yeah. So we, uh, Actors Express has done, which I think is, is really brilliant, is they set up each of the actors with a, their own mic and their own computer in different rooms in the Actors Express building. And then we are all on Zoom together so they can all hear each other and react to each other in real time. But the recording, the audio is being recorded on separate lines so that then it can all be spliced together um, in post-production by our brilliant uh, sound designer, and sound mixer, Angie Bryant is her name. She's really great. And so that was basically how it worked. And then we had some scenes where there would be more than, we only had six mics at a time. So we had some scenes where there would be more than six people. And so we'd have to like switch the mics around and people would have to like go back and forth. And it was really chaotic, but a lot of fun. (laughs) It sounds like it. You mentioned the sound designer. The series is filled with rich sound effects and background noise that transport you to Tucker's Cove. How did you work with her to create these effects? Yeah, so we, Parker had written, wrote on Crossroads last year. Uh, She wrote one episode of Crossroads. And so she had some experience with the podcasting thing. I had never written something that was purely auditory, 
Um, so it was a challenge for me to get used to like, oh, how do you build like a soundscape for the world? So when we got together with Angie, she really helped to specify that and really laser focus it. It was a lot of like, okay, what's recurring sounds, right? Like, what do we have for like sounds for, for the telepad, which is like their iPad kind of thing? What do we have for like the background noises? How do we set the stage for like when they're in the cafeteria? Let's have some clanging forks and trays and things like that. Let's have different music be the backdrop for different characters so you can get a sense of their different styles. So it was a lot of like building soundscapes of locations so the audience could position themselves there, especially like, what do you hear specifically in a place like this, right? You've got a greenhouse, there's wind chimes, you've got, you know, a cafeteria, there's the clanging. So, meteorology, huh? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, thanks. What do you, like, um, okay, I guess, like, what, what do you want to do with it? Are you serious? About? Uh, like, you, you actually want to know? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, okay. Well, um, I, I like to study weather patterns. Um, they've changed a lot in the last hundred years with air pressure and carbon monoxide levels changing. So, um, actually, I've been tracking... Um, I, I've been tracking weather patterns across the country, especially here in the East, just trying to see if there are discernible patterns so that we can predict disasters before they happen and can evacuate people. Um, I, I actually created this. Holy shit, it's interactive? Uh, yeah. So it doesn't just tell you data past weather. You can actually change the temperature and the day of the year, uh, everything, and it will give you predictions. It's not very accurate yet, like it didn't catch today's water spout, but it tends to be pretty good for things like hurricanes and stuff like that. Sid, this is really cool. And you've got a dorm, there's the music in the background, you've got a party, there's the talking and the music, all that kind of stuff. And so she really helped us get really specific. And we ended up creating a sound key document where we had different soundscapes for different locations, as well as recurring sounds, such as the turning on of the telepad, pressing record, things like that. Um, so she really helped us kind of get that all organized. Wow. It, it sure brings home the fact that sound design is its own art form. Absolutely. I mean, totally. And it was crazy, too, having that conversation and then getting the episodes to give back notes and just hearing the way, you know, there were moments while we were recording where me and Parker were like, oh, my God, I don't know if this is going to you know, is this going to play out? Are you going to be able to like understand this? But then you add the layer of the sound design to it and it just colors it so differently and creates such clarity when you're talking about something like a podcast. But it also gives room, right, for the listener to, to create their own world inside their head. So it's not quite as prescriptive, but it's so specific and it's so it's just so beneficial to like the story. I mean, even in film, sound design is important. So you can imagine that it's even more so important in a podcast. Mm. After each episode, you, Parker, and producer Amanda Washington have a behind-the-scenes chat under the cove. Why did you want to include that feature? Yeah, so that was something that... Amanda did last year in Crossroads. And I think that the reason why um, she wanted to do that, at least from what I understand, is that the whole Amplify program, the idea is to amplify the voices of local playwrights, right? We have such a beautiful breadth of writing in Atlanta, such talented, hardworking writers. And the entire idea is to bring them to the forefront and give them a way to get their work produced without necessarily having to go through all the hoops that you have to go through to get a production on its feet, especially right now with COVID, right? Theater is more difficult now than it was before. So as a new writer, it's way more difficult to get your, your work produced. And so they wanted to give an opportunity for playwrights to amplify their voices. I think that the Under the Cove allows us to come at the forefront of the project and remind people that we are the creators of the story um, and allow us to amplify our voices, let people know what our process is, um, you know, just get our names out there so that we can let Atlanta become the writing town it's begging to be. Playwright Sophia Palmero. Actors Express, new podcast series, Tucker's Cove. 
is available now on all streaming platforms with new episodes releasing weekly. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Monday is President's Day, and if you're looking for a way to feel connected to our nation's highest office, the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum will be open on the 21st in celebration of the holiday. The special hours and more information about tickets, including COVID-19 safety measures, are available on the website, jimmycarterlibrary.gov. And there are public and educational programs online, virtual programs offered, also at jimmycarterlibrary.gov. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m., Tony Stone, the true story of the first female professional baseball player, is the new production on stage at the Alliance Theater. We'll hear from director Tanache Kajisi Bolden and actor Kedrin Spencer. Plus, recommendations from music contributor Vaughn Phoenix in our series Punk Black to Go. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.